Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Moises Random, the director of the Future Venezuela Initiative and fellow of the Americas program at CSIS. With how professional the Mexican, but are we ready? I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. Venezuela has been experiencing a humanitarian, economic, and political crisis for years. While much emphasis is placed on the situation inside the country, this crisis knows no borders. Neighboring Colombia has been significantly impacted in terms of both migration and security. To discuss this impact, we're joined by Ambassador Francisco Santos Calderon. Colombian ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Santos has had a distinguished public service career. He previously served as Vice President of Colombia from 2002 to 2010. Thank you, Ambassador, for joining us today. Thank you, Moises. It's a pleasure being here in, a, in your podcast. Colombian President Ivan Duque has stated that the Venezuelan crisis is a threat to democracy in the region and the world. El régimen dictatorial de Maduro se sostiene con los recursos del narcotráfico, alberga terroristas y es una amenaza constante para la democracia en la región y en todo el mundo. Ambassador, can you elaborate on how you see Colombia's future playing out if the status quo continues in Venezuela? You have to look at the Venezuelan crisis today very differently from what it was four years ago, eight years ago, or 12 years ago. It has only gotten worse, one and it will get even worse too. It was a local crisis where Venezuela was having deep economic problems. It became a regional crisis when migration started, and it's now a geostrategic crisis because the actors have changed. And those actors have obviously their own interests to further their own political and international goals. And those goals have one very, very, very strategic issue and is destroy democracy, and is challenge the U.S., and is create an unstable continent. And that's why President Duque has said that uh, Venezuela has become a strategic problem for democracy and for the survival of democracy in the region. Our first test, Ecuador, two weeks. The second test, Peru. The third test, Chile. And two very big tests the year afterward, Colombia in May, and Brazil in October. So what you have is a huge new influence of external actors to the region that are going to complicate the region for years to come. That's what we're playing with. And I think the US and the new administration has to understand how different the Venezuelan game is today than it was even four years ago when they left office. Thank you, Ambassador. We're going to dive deeper into those issues. But let's dive now into the migration crisis that you mentioned and how it has affected Colombia, right? Venezuela is the second largest migration crisis in the world today, yet it is vastly underfunded compared to other crises, such as the Syrian conflict. Four years into the crisis, the international community had spent just over $600 million, a fraction of the Cumulative 7.4 billion spent on the Syrian crisis in the same time frame. So why do you think the international community has not rallied together to provide more humanitarian assistance for this crisis? And I'm glad you mentioned the Syrian crisis. Venezuela has become the Syria of the region with the same objectives, with very similar actors. 
And we have to learn from those lessons. And in that crisis, migration was a political tool. Migration into Jordan, migration into Lebanon, and migration into Europe became an instrument of political pressure. That exactly has happened in this region too. With the difference that obviously Latin America has no Europe, we don't have the budget of Europe to deal with the migration crisis. In the case of Colombia, the 2 million migrants, and, and I would say it's even more so than, than those numbers because with the closure of the borders, what we have seen is that they're going into Colombia, not to the traditional way, which was wide open. We had wide open borders and we were able to register them. It's now mostly illegal migration. And you have migration moving all over the continent to obviously Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Argentina, Brazil. There's no country in the region that doesn't have that problem now. The caravans that you have in Central America is what goes into Colombia in one week. All of the caravans in one week. That just shows that dimension. Why? Lack of interest, I would say, one. Two, they're still dealing with the Syrian problem. Three, it's not in their strategic interest, to be very, very sincere. And when you look at the dimensions of um, a Syrian refugee was getting around $1,500 of aid, a Venezuelan refugee is getting less than 100 That's how big the difference is. And for Colombia, obviously, it's big pressure in terms of its fiscal deficit, more than a billion dollars that we have invested. And it's also become an instrument of destabilization by those who are using Venezuela as a copycat of Syria to create instability in the countries around the region, Colombia, Peru, Chile, etc. So, so it's all very much intertwined. You can't look at migration, Venezuela, external actors, without understanding and looking at ours examples, because those external actors really learn from their victories, from their victories in Syria, from their victories in the region, and from their victories in other places where they use social networks and targeted communication electorally. You have to put everything in that perspective because that's what the problem is now. And I would encourage you, CSIS, which has lots of influence in this administration, to help them understand that this crisis is so different from what it was five or 10 years ago with external actors playing a huge role that is critical to understand how that is moving and how all of the pieces, including migration, is part of a bigger chess board that the U.S. has to understand. Thank you, Ambassador. And that's why I was eager to talk to you, because if there is someone or a country that needs to be heard in Washington and international community of the impact of the Venezuelan crisis is Colombia. Despite that it's a regional crisis, Colombia again has burned the brunt of the Venezuelan exodus. As of today, Migration Colombia counted more than 2 million Venezuelan migrants in the country. Many of these individuals cross the border in a desperate search for food and medicine and then return to Venezuela. On the Simón Bolívar International Bridge in Cúcuta, which divides Colombia from Venezuela, people from all walks of life come together, seeking to cross desperately. Mothers carrying their malnourished children, seniors in wheelchairs hoping to see a doctor, and children crossing alone to gather basic goods for their families. I visit Cucuta in 2019 to talk to these Venezuelan migrants. Here's what Jose from Estado Miranda had to say about it. Oye, la, para mí, 
The truth is, for me, thank God that there are people in Colombia who have helped us with food, with clothes and shoes and things. But what I need more than anything is money. I can find food, but money is what I need the most because my mom needs it to pay rent, to buy food, or if her baby gets sick. But Ambassador, I wanted to ask you, what does Colombia specifically need to better respond to the migration crisis right now in the next few weeks and months? First thing I would say is, Help us pay for the vaccines of legal and illegal migrants. You do nothing if you vaccinate and we're going to pay for the vaccines of Colombians, but you have one and a half, maybe two, two and a half, we don't know, of migrants that are going to come. That's a 50, 100, $150 million aid. And we hope that the new uh, head of AID will understand that and will help us not only in Colombia, but all over Latin America do this process of vaccination. That is one of the big uh, and most important issues in this semester. This is what we're going to need very, very, very quickly. And we'll hope that uh, our friends in Congress will understand that and that the AID and all the State Department will understand that that's an urgency. But that's a band-aid to what the problem is. The problem is really that Venezuela has become Syria in terms of geostrategic position, but Somalia and Afghanistan in terms of what is happening. It's a hub of transnational crime. And in Syria and, and in Venezuela, what has happened, and I think that's a critical element of it, is that for the first time you have a transnational terrorist group operating and growing out of Venezuela, which is the ELN. The ELN right now is more powerful in Venezuela than in Colombia. The ELN controls many of the border states of Venezuela with Colombia. It controls the colectivos, it controls the pranis, it controls the illegal industry, it controls illegal mining, and it's getting so many resources to do what we were able to find out they are doing And we were able to capture the computers of one of the heads of the ELN that died in an operation of, by the Colombian military. Those computers are as big and as information-rich as the ones that we were able to get from Raul Reyes after we took him down in the operation in, uh, in Ecuador. Correa was protecting him. So what we have found out is they're building cells all over Latin America. They're influencing campaigns. Actually, money from that organization We don't know where that was coming from, was going to the campaign in Ecuador. They're using social networks being taught by external organizations and external intelligence agencies to create havoc in Colombia and in the other countries that they know because they learned something. Right now, social networks, right now, information is the biggest weakness of democracy. And that asymmetrical war that they can play can really change elections, can really change moods. So what we have now in Latin America for the first time is a Hezbollah organization where the role of Iran is being played by other external actors that know how to play that game and that know how to move in that scenario. That's how big the problem in Latin America is now. And that is the biggest ask that I think not only Colombia, but all of the countries that have the shared values of the U.S. will have to make to the U.S., understand that the rules of the game changed, understand that the enemies changed to a certain extent, but are the same in, in some other areas of the world that they have battled. And we need to wake up to what that threat is. It moves very, very quickly. And as I said before, first test, Ecuador in the next two weeks. 
This is obviously not a humanitarian crisis. This goes beyond a humanitarian crisis and it taps into security and stability in the region and democracy. And as you said, Venezuela has become a hub for criminal activities. ELM, FARC, DCNs are present of over 13 states out of the 23 states that Venezuela has, especially across that Colombian border, no? more than 1,300 miles border that both countries share. The Maduro regime has progressively lost control over the territories. And the Guaido interim government has little to no institutional and territorial control either. And I remember you were vice president with President Uribe when one of the most successful U.S. foreign policy's objectives was achieved with Plan Colombia. And while Colombia has made tremendous progress, you know, in securing its territory from armed groups and finding a peaceful way forward, the problem has seemed to transfer to neighboring Venezuela now. So I, I wanted to ask you that, and you already kind of tap into that, but let, let's get maybe deeper. Um, why should the new Biden administration pay special attention to these aiming to so many competing priorities, right? Within the U.S., we have a pandemic around the globe. You have, you know, a number of top security issues. So why these crises, these security crises that you're saying should be on top of the agenda for the Biden administration? Hearing Secretary Blinken in his various speeches he has given since he's been confirmed, he talks about China, Iran, Russia, North Korea. Guess what? They're right next door. <laughs> Guess what? That's part of what is happening in the continent. So 21st century disputes, problems, and wars are going to be absolutely asymmetrical. You had a big test case in Syria. We know how that came out and what happened in Syria and what many of the elements of Syria are being replicated in Venezuela. And so Venezuela has become a proxy war of interests, a proxy war of conflict creation in which it is being used as a base. And as I said before, where you want to create chaos in the region, you want to create instability in the region, you want to challenge core democratic values in the region, and you want to create the conditions so that you have a totally different political scenario in the region in the next two to three years, which is possible and it can happen. And it's, I have no doubt that that proxy war that is being fought through Venezuela has its main interest in the next three to five years. Second, if you look at what happened in Chile, which was the model of Latin America, we all wanted to be Chileans. We thought, wow, look at Chile. And look at the stability that Chile is in now. They were able to destabilize Chile very quickly and almost for free. But guess what? When you look at how many of the things that were organized in Chile to destroy the subway and create that instability and, and really dismantle an institutionality, they're going to have elections for a new constitution, like if constitutions change the reality of a country. Many of what happened and a lot of things that we've seen were being moved from outside Chile through social networks. And when you look at what happened in Chile, you see a big influence from Ukraine, Europe, and it's not Ukrainian or European organizations that were doing that. It's intelligence organizations that are using different hubs to create that. They tried to do it in Colombia. They couldn't because we're more prepared, but they learned from it. And the second time they were able to do it. Exactly the same replica of, of organization was done in Colombia and they were able to burn in Bogotá, I don't remember if five or six or seven police stations, small police stations that we have in the barrios and they learned from it. So in this new scenario of geopolitical destabilization, which is what has been 
put forward right now in Venezuela, we need to understand that cybersecurity and cyber war becomes a critical element that strengthening intelligence and those apparatus so that influence in elections can be detected early so that we understand what is happening. When we look at the money that is going into candidates and, and candidacies and things like that, because speaking with persons from Ecuador, they're saying we're, we're seeing money that we had never seen in a campaign. And you look at the computers by Uriel, which is a very interesting member of the ELM because he's not the old guard. He's not the absolute new guard. He's a bridge between them but he understands how money making and the importance of social networks and all this. And so you see that they're moving money into the campaign of one candidate in Ecuador. You're seeing all the chips falling into place. So we need them. What you call the deep state and also the foreign policy apparatus of the U.S. understand that the region changed dramatically. The actors that have been involved are very, very aggressive, know their stuff, know how they do it, are very good in this type of asymmetric and political war. And we need to counterbalance that. Otherwise, we're going to have a very unstable democracy in very anti-American democracies, if you can call them democracies, because the difference, when you look at populists in Latin America, like Chavez or Maduro, they don't leave. It's a big difference. So we're playing with fire. We're playing a different war that we are not prepared to play with. And the only actor in the region that can help us balance that is the U.S. and they need to understand that this is what's happening in Latin America right now. Thank you, Ambassador. And I can assure you CSA is going to keep shedding a light on all of those issues. Just to wrap up, Ambassador, I mean, going back to the point, right? Like if we don't have a solution to the crisis in Venezuela, it looks like the region will only get more unstable no? because, again, this is affecting so many countries around the region. So, you know, Elliot Abrams at CSIS, he put it this way. In Venezuela, you have three options. One, magic. If you believe in magic, that would be one. Two, a military intervention, which obviously is not a, a no one interest to do that and it can backfire. But third would be a negotiated solution. But you know that negotiations have failed in Venezuela. We have tried so many times in the last 20 years And it has always helped the Maduro regime to stay in power, divide the opposition, and frustrate the Venezuelan people. That said, it seems like the Venezuelan crisis will need to be resolved through some sort of dialogue or negotiation. So I wanted to ask you, Ambassador, what do you think are the key aspects that we should keep in mind when thinking about a potential renewed effort to negotiate with the Maduro regime? The first thing that you need to understand is that those negotiations now have different actors. You can't just negotiate opposition and government. You have new actors that are going to play and are going to want their piece of the pie. External actors, other countries, countries that have played, have played and play in Venezuela very, very aggressively. So you have to understand that it's now a geopolitical negotiation. <laughs> it became even worse. Five or ten years ago, it could have been a negotiation, Maduro in opposition. Now it's not that. Now, that's only one element of negotiation. So whatever the U.S. does in other of those countries, they have to understand that their presence in those countries and their interest in those countries are going to come up to the table of negotiations. That's just a fact of life. Is it going to be a negotiation of this for this in other areas of the world? I don't know. But we have to understand that's going to happen. One. Two. What are the ultimate objectives? Is there a staged negotiation? Is, is it the first stage of negotiation? Maduro leaves. 
and we see if somebody from Chavismo is going to crop up, somebody different, is he going to be replacing Maduro for uh, Diosdado? And do, is he going to be a negotiation to have an interim government where everybody participates? Is he going to be a negotiation to have transparent elections? Can you have transparent elections where there's no institutionality? I heard uh, uh, Secretary Blinken say something very, very intelligent about the situation in, 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 in Libya. Yeah. We misplayed or misunderstood the weakness of the institutionality in Libya. And therefore, what we created was this huge problem that you have now. Believe me, the institutionality right now in Venezuela is probably the same as it was in Libya at that time. That's how weak it is. That's how difficult it is. So how are we and what are the actors you're going to need to build that institutionality and that security apparatus so that we can have free and fair elections? Obviously, Colombia is one of them. Obviously, uh, the U.S. is going to be another one. How are we going, those negotiations, how are we going to put those negotiations to create for the interest of everybody, Venezuelans, Colombians, the U.S. and everybody, a negotiation in which we can move from the chaos we have now, which is a Syrian model with Afghanistan and Somalia type of criminal organizations managing a country. How do we move from this to the rebuilding of institutions with opposition, a split opposition, which is unfortunate, we have to say that. And how do we guarantee sort of a, the creation of, of normalcy and some stepping stones in which we can say, okay, now we can have elections. And without a doubt, the first step has to be goodbye Maduro. It would be great if we could have goodbye Maduro, a national unity government under a UN presence, Colombian, Americans, Chileans, uh, other countries that could help rebuild the security apparatus and the security institutionality, because that's the first thing that has to be done. Right now, you go to a Caracas or you go to the smallest town in Venezuela and there's no state. The person who controls your life is the one who has the biggest gun. That's the truth. And in some cases, yeah. it's the ELN, in some cases, it's the FARC, in some cases, it's the PRANES, in some cases, the Colectivos, some cases, it's uh, one element of the armed forces. So that's the challenge that we have. And with that, when will the U.S. lift sanctions? Because that would be the ultimate goal. When do we lift sanctions? Do we lift them at the beginning? Because why have negotiations in the past not worked? Because the only objective of Maduro and those behind Maduro that were helping him in that. And we come back again to the actors that we were talking about, the external actors. They needed time to consolidate their positions and to let their pieces in the chess game become more strong. And those pieces, what they want is more chaos. What they want is weaker state. What they want is their organizations becoming more entrenched in Venezuela, gaining the power that they need to destabilize the rest of the region. So you're going to have a big element of opposition for real negotiations from those actors. And I'll give you an example. Hezbollah is in Venezuela. What are they doing? Getting millions and millions and millions of dollars out of Venezuela in gold, in drug trafficking, so that they can finance their operations in the Middle East. They're not going to give that for free. You know, they have great business in Venezuela, getting money to further their model and their intentions and their political perspective in, uh, in their political objectives in the Middle East. That's exactly what Venezuela has become. And the other countries have the same interests. So, yes, negotiations are absolutely necessary, but we need to be very clear that even if we get the best negotiation, and yes, 
tomorrow. All of the Maduris that live in Guaido is president and the military. That's the day one. Of, Step one, yeah. So I'm sorry to be very pessimistic, wow. but I'd rather be realistic and have the administration and everybody here in D.C. understand what we're up against than just uh, paint a different picture than what, uh, what, what is necessary so that we can really get to a solution of the problem. Uh, Ambassador, I fully agree with you. This is going to be one of the most challenging crises that the U.S. has probably helped manage in our region, and it will only get worse. This is not going anywhere, and uh, not doing nothing is not a solution, quite the opposite. So I think that your points are well taken, and thank you for sharing those in 35 West. Moises, thank you very much, and, and thank you to all the listeners of this podcast. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.